these people were talking about computing long before we had computers in an abstract mathematical way. And the people we really owe these machines to were abstract logicians who were the weirdos of their time. They were sort of viewed as the least likely people to have any impact on the real world, yet they did. That's, of course, always why the story is interesting about the underdog who changes the world who nobody listened to at the time. We should probably talk about your dad because we're talking about the future. And my mom, who was also a guest on the podcast, is an author, a fairly well-known Puerto Rican memoirist. I grew up on book tour, going to events where she was the speaker and doing things that I imagine were kind of similar to what you did growing up, although in scientific circles rather than in literary circles. And so I don't mind talking about my mom, but I don't often get asked to talk about her. But your dad was a pretty seminal figure in the world that we live in today. Do you want to talk a little bit about who he was, what he did? So my father came from that exact same world, except he waited way longer to become a writer. I mean, he became a real working mathematician and deeply involved in the formation of physics as we know it, but retained that same love of space. And when they were filming 2001, they brought several scientists over to the set with Stanley Kubrick. The movie was going to open with a series of interviews with real scientists explaining how what they were going to see in this film was completely possible. And unlike so much modern film, which loses the laws of physics right away. So Freeman was one of those speakers. So those interviews must exist buried somewhere. I've never seen it. They brought Marvin Minsky to talk about AI. And the original version of 2001 had the propulsion system was the same thing used on Project Orion, which was the project that Freeman worked on to propel a large spaceship with nuclear energy in the 1950s. And then Kubrick actually nixed that because he had just done Dr. Strangelove, which to me is one of the greatest films of all time. It didn't want to get cast as, oh, he, Kubrick, he's got to put nuclear bombs in all his films. So he left it out. One of the things I love about your work is that when we're holding our smartphones and talking over Zoom and just using the internet as if it's invisible, because it is invisible to us, it's very easy to forget that people invented this shit and people a generation ago invented this. This isn't the inevitable conclusion of anything. This is just how stuff is because of a dozen, two dozen, three dozen scientists bringing things to reality where you grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. And that is the world we're currently living in. Yes. And the other people who deserve credit of course, there were a huge number of women involved, and there were the government officials who risked their careers and broke the rules to fund these crazy people, who by modern standards, they just would never get funded because they were trying to break the rules. When you look at how did all this crazy stuff get done in the 1950s, that's kind of why, because people were willing to break the rules. Part of the reason they were willing to break the rules, right, is because they were terrified that the Soviets were going to get there first. And so when von Neumann said, I want to build this thing, it's going to cost an ungodly amount of money, and I don't even know what it's going to do. Imagine trying to sell that today. <laughs> that was one of the things in Turing's Cathedral that was so amazing to me is describing, maybe you can describe it better than me, but his pitch to get the first computer funded. Once we build this thing, we will figure out ways to use it. They had some reasons they really needed it for weapons, but that was how the government was sort of able to make the decision to fund this thing. They didn't know what the applications would be, but they were there. When I wrote Turing's Cathedral, I realized it's towards the end because I was chronicling this from the very moment they had the idea to build a computer to the getting the money, building the workshops, building the machine. I mean, figuring out which vacuum tubes to use, just doing everything from the ground up to getting it running and solving problems that they I realized that they had 
done all that. I had all their logbooks and years along the wall here that I copied. They were ahead of me. They did the whole thing in less time than it was taking me to write about it. You know, that's a sobering thought, just how quickly they were able to. Same with Los Alamos, these other projects. Yeah, Los Alamos is the Manhattan Project for listeners who aren't into the history of technology. But one of the things I learned from your work and from other descriptions of Los Alamos and Feynman's books and all that stuff is that the modern world really kind of started with the Manhattan Project. There was a lot of theory floating around and they just concentrated the best minds they could think of and say, make this into something and hopefully make it into something that can explode. But along the way, make it into other things we can use. Yes. And they brought together all these very creative scientists from many different countries. What we forget is that actually it wasn't just physics. A whole lot of the modern revolution in biology came out of there too. The ability to really look at these strings of DNA as information problems and so on was thinking about that was what some of these physicists were doing in their spare time. And they, they took that back to the real world of biology when the war was over. Hard to imagine solving nuclear equations as your day job and then at night working on DNA. I think it was clear in 1953 that we were headed in a new direction, that the world was going to radically change. It already had radically changed. In the last 30 years, it had probably changed more than it changed in the previous hundred. It was clear that we were going to head somewhere, but it was unclear where that place was going to be. And World War II seemed to really set the direction. It set where these innovations were going to take place. They were going to take place in the United States and who was going to be in control of them. That's a pretty big deal. The first hydrogen bomb was 1951, but that was kept really quite secret. But by 1953, it really came out in the open and we started building large numbers of hydrogen bombs. So 1953, it really became clear that we could destroy the planet 100 times over. At the end of World War II, the nuclear weapons were too big to launch on rockets. The rockets weren't big enough to launch nuclear weapons, but the bombs were getting smaller and smaller, and the rockets were getting larger and larger, and it was a point at which those two lines crossed, and that was really 1953 when we had a rocket big enough to launch a hydrogen bomb. That meant that you could destroy another country without destroying yourself. The objective of military rocketry was to make the target more dangerous than the launch site. It was 40 or 50 years before more people were killed at the target than were killed launching rockets. I mean, rockets were really a messy business for a long time. It's probably even true of the V2. Certainly more people died making the V2s than died being hit in London. I just want to like ask you some general questions. So George Dyson, you are the grandson of Sir George Dyson, who is a composer who is responsible, among other people, for Julian Bream's career. And Julian Bream is one of the greatest classical guitarists ever. And Sir George Dyson is the head of the RCM, the Royal College of Music, allowed him to study guitar, which at that time was not a studyable classical instrument, but he just thought he'd be good at it. And Julian Bream and Segovia are pretty much the fathers of modern classical guitar. So that's pretty cool. There's different versions of that story, but the one I've heard, which is really good, and it's probably true because I've heard it from a couple sources, was that Julian Bream was a child prodigy of a guitar player, and he wanted to go to the Royal College of Music, but they wouldn't let him in. He appealed the decision. As part of the appeal, he had to meet with a director, who was my grandfather. He came in to have this audience with the director and play the guitar. So apparently my grandfather asked him, you play so well, what do you want to go to the Royal College of Music? I mean, A, we don't teach the guitar and you play perfectly. And he said, no, I want to learn music theory. So that was a good answer. That was the right answer. So apparently my grandfather issued the following decision that 
he would be admitted, but because they had no one in the college who could teach the guitar, they couldn't charge him tuition. So he got to go for free. That's amazing. And apparently with a couple of other musicians, that was the case that he was really good at sort of seeing talent and fostering it in ways that were not traditional because the British Musical Academy was not and is not known for being a barrier breaking institution, shall we say. Did you study music as a child? No, I mean, I was forced to play the violin and I hated it. Grandson of George Dyson, Freeman Dyson, you know, famous scientist. Let's flash forward to the most interesting turn in Analogia for me, because it talks about the czar and these expeditions to Russia. And then it gets into your childhood, your early 20s. It's this beautiful arc of following these expeditions to Russia and following them across the Bering Strait and then down to British Columbia through time where we meet you living in a treehouse. So let's describe how you got there. I grew up in New Jersey and found it terribly boring. Wanted to get as far away as possible. And, you know, the missing character there is my mother, who was very adventurous, always moving around and quite a mountaineer and stuff. So she brought me to California where my older half-sister moved to Vancouver, got married there. So I got invited to Vancouver to go to this family wedding at age 17 and saw a classified ad in the newspaper for a job on a boat, never looked back, moved to British Columbia and found this amazing coastline, coastline that had fewer people living on it now than any time in the last 10,000 years. Now we're seeing this, finally, it's public, what a horrible thing the Canadian government instituting this established program of removing people from their own villages and consolidating the children in these residential schools. It sort of wiped out the village. So the villages suddenly had, in the 1950s, no longer had children because the children were taken to these schools. So this whole coastline was empty. And if you could sense that, it was sort of sad, but of course, most people didn't. So I had to work that story, the treehouse chapter in that book tells the story of how did that land get to belong to the white people? And it comes down to specifics. How did it actually, I was able to find the court cases involved in murder and so on, how this land that had belonged to the Soewatus, how it came to be owned by this guy who expropriated the land that my treehouse was built on. So that is not a conventional trajectory. No, but I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, like so many kids playing in the woods and dreaming of the wilderness. And as a child, everything is the wilderness. And I built a kayak when I was 12 out of some obsession. I don't really know where that came from. But then when I got to Canada, it was suddenly real. It was a country that was mostly wilderness. So there's no way I wanted to come back. I became a boat builder, had no intention of doing what I do now at all. I worked on commercial boats, tugboats, big boats, and then started building my own boats and then started building kayaks. It was just lucky. My life is just a series of absolute coincidences that I happened to become obsessed with kayaks just before kayaking could have had this renaissance of being popular. Maybe I had something to do with that. So I could actually make a living designing kayaks and building them. And then I had the fortune that this writer, Kenneth Brower, who's still in the Bay Area, and his younger brother was sort of my best misfit friend. We were fellow outcasts, nonconformists. But his older brother was a writer who wrote this book, The Starship and the Canoe. It was half about me and half about my father and just hit a nerve. I mean, it became hugely successful. And we saw this dad trying to build this enormous spaceship and the son trying to build these big canoes. And it just made a beautiful story, wove it together into this story. You know, that had great effects on me. It was strange. My father was already like 50, but I was 25. If your biography comes out when you're 25, what do you do for the rest of your life? 
So it shifted my life in a sense that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life being that guy in that book. Same with music. You do one number one song for the rest of your life. That's what everybody wants you to play at the party. And how do you get away from that? That had a strange effect of shifting me to write about science and do things like that. Like, I don't just want to be the guy who lived in the treehouse for the rest of my life. It just captures that period of time in a very beautiful way. It did become a film in Japan. It did really well. In America, we saw this as a conflict between the generations, the treehouse versus nuclear physics. And in Japan, they saw it much more as a synthesis, father and son, same vision in a different way. One of the most profound ideas in your book, I thought, was getting into the badarkas. It was about physical forms being living things. For listeners who don't know what a badarka is, I'll let you describe what it is specifically, but it's a kind of kayak that has been built in the same or a similar way for many, many generations. Bydarka is simply the Russian word for kayak. So if you go to Russia to buy a kayak today, it's a bydarka. But the interesting thing is that when the Russians came to America on the Pacific coast before any other Europeans in the 1700s, the normal colonial model is that the colonists come in and they wipe out and replace the indigenous technology. When the Russians came to Alaska, the reverse happened. Instead of the Russians wiping out the native technology, they adopted it. So the Russians started building large fleets of kayaks, calling them bydarkas. As a teenager, that absolutely fascinated me. I was like, dream come true. Whoa, you know, Europe starts building kayaks. And in Canada, there were kayaks on the $2 bills. So to me, that was a great thing. Now, there was conflict between the Russians and the natives at the beginning, but that did get resolved. So by the time the Americans took over Alaska, the main administration was in the hands of native people due to Catherine the Great, was reasonably progressive about allowing her native subjects to govern themselves in a way that we didn't try that model. It worked pretty well in Greenland with Denmark. Greenland was administrated by Denmark, but really allowed to be pretty autonomous. And the same was true in Alaska. So again, after the Civil War, we kind of showed up and ruined it. So Bidarka just means kayak, but it has that cultural association. It's a case of a kayak being adopted not for sport, but as a practical vehicle. In all of Alaska at that time, the Bidarka was the main means of transport. It was sort of served as a pickup truck or the sports car. You know, there were different versions, including very large kayaks with three hatches, which fascinated me. So it came down the coast as far as California, even Baja, California. For a period, there was this kayak-based hybrid European native civilization, which was still the future I dreamed of at that time. Maybe I misread this in your book, but there was a section, I think it started by describing a whirlpool and then talking about how the form of the kayak had stayed the same and had evolved over years in the way that a living organism does the same thing. It's called morphogenesis or the generation of forms. And so when you look at a whirlpool... The water is moving through the channel, millions of gallons a minute running by. It's not like there's a bunch of water and it's a whirlpool. The whirlpool is a form that persists as the flow. And it's the same with living organisms. They are patterns. And this isn't my analogy. This actually came from Carl Woese, the great biologist who discovered the third kingdom of life. But he made that point that organisms are persistent patterns in the flow. It's true that some parts of our bones stay the same, but most organisms are being renewed all the time. We're a living pattern. And that's true from generation to generation. And I believe it's true of technologies, too, that some of these very evolved technologies like kayaks or a throwing stick or something like that, they're so perfectly meshed with the environment that they're there like a whirlpool. And even if a different culture 
moves in to live on that coast, the kayaks will probably come back because it's an inherent form. That's also the story of American music. The banjo is an African instrument that has evolved into an American instrument, the mandolin. I mean, you can take any musical instrument and it's the culmination of thousands of years of work and millions of man hours by dedicated craftsmen to get it just right. Many instruments have been perfected. I think the mandolin is pretty much as good as it's going to get from a design perspective. And the next iteration would be a different instrument. It's interesting. This goes back to a little bit about what we were talking about, that we live in the world that we live in and we don't think about necessarily how it got this way. Why have you dedicated so much of your professional life to writing about the history of technology? What about that seems important to you and what keeps you going? Like all the other things in my life, pretty much by accident. I came here to Bellingham 32 years ago to set up this old tavern on the waterfront. I was going to build kayak kits, effectively, which is what I did. And that's kind of all I'd been doing. And then that book, The Starship and the Canoe, became very popular in Japan. So 90% of my income was coming from Japan. I was really supported by the Japanese who worshipped this kind of craftsmanship that I was doing. So I got asked by a Japanese magazine, a very fancy sort of art culture magazine to write a commission essay about nature and technology on the assumption that I would write about kayaks as being highly evolved technology that fit the theme of the issue. And for some reason, I was bored and obstinate or something. And I just woke up one day and said, I'm tired of writing about kayaks. I'm just George the kayak guy. Instead, I wrote a little essay about computers, about my childhood, you see that in the other books, my childhood growing up in Princeton, where there was one computer, the guy who was my role model was Julian Bigelow, the engineer who actually built this computer. And he had an aircraft engine in his living room at home. I mean, he was a mechanic. He built things. He built this computing engine with vacuum tubes and fascinated me. So I wrote this essay about how that was in the late 80s, early 90s. So the internet was just starting to come out of the military world into the commercial world. So I wrote this full story about being a child where there was just one computer and everybody in the world who had a problem had to come there to use it to the world now that you could send computer programs over floppy disks. And that essay hit a nerve and a book agent, John Brockman, read it and called me up. I was actually in Alaska when he called, just left a message. This is deep and important. You should write a book. He had a real sense for where culture was going. There was no books yet about the cultural history of what had led up to the internet. I said, sure, I'll write a book. I didn't know anything about any of this. He sold it in a week to Addison Wesley. At that time, the only publishers who published anything about computers, it wasn't like a user's manual for mainframe systems or something. So Addison Wesley bought it and suddenly I had to write a deep book about the history of computing. And then, I mean, I still kept building kayaks, but suddenly I had this huge thing hanging over my head and that book became Darwin Among the Machines. Then I kind of never looked back because that the problem with that book was it was very successful in the sense that the internet hit the culture. That book became important to explaining it. Then I became a writer. So my next book was Project Orion about this secret space project in the 50s that my dad had worked on. I got to that just in time, just when the physicists who worked on it were in their 80s and 90s and was able to interview them. So that was a very different book done from conversations with living people. Orion was trying to go to space with nuclear power. Yeah, with nuclear explosions. So it was a very idealistic dream of these physicists. And there were people from 14 countries working on the project. It was before NASA. NASA didn't exist when this project was started. It was sort of America's answer. What are we going to do? 
bigger than the Russians. It was a very mixed message. On one hand, you could say it's a great dream. On the other hand, it was a tragedy. It didn't happen. But it was this big dream. And I got enough stuff declassified to be able to talk to people about it. Suddenly, I became a writer. And then the same with the next book, Touring Through Here, was they were all driven by wanting to tell the story of people whose stories were being forgotten. And in Turing's Cathedral, it was really the case of the engineers and the people like Kari von Neumann, who played a huge role in creating this digital world, but didn't exist in the histories yet. That was a 10-year project, at least, but worth it. I mean, in the end, it really did change history in the sense that now people know Julian Bigelow for the genius that he was. And was previously just dismissed as an engineer, but he was the architect of that machine. Everything we do in computing today came from his architecture, and he was very withdrawn, soft-spoken, depressed in the end. It was a tragedy, but setting the record straight really counts. And what a unique story for you to be able to tell, because you had a front row seat to all this stuff. I don't think that's totally important. I mean, people can write great books about things they had nothing to do with, but it certainly helps to have had some direct and a lot of that comes through my mother, who was a mathematical logician. So she really came out of the same world as Turing and Kurt Gödel. And these people were talking about computing long before we had computers in an abstract mathematical way. And the people we really owe these machines to were abstract logicians who were the weirdos of their time. They were sort of viewed as the least likely people to have any impact on the real world, yet they did. That's, of course, always why the story is interesting about the underdog who changes the world who nobody listened to at the time. And my mother was a huge critic. I mean, anything I would write, she would tear it apart. Mathematical logic is incorrect. She helped a lot pointing out mistakes. And didn't live to see analogia, but would have hated mathematical ideas being appropriated by popular culture, talking about things as quantum leaps or singularity drove her crazy too, because singularity has a very precise mathematical meaning. Don't mess with it. Invent a new word if you want. We've been sort of dancing around this. You lived for a little while at the IAS as a child, right? The Institute for Advanced Studies. Yes, most of my childhood. Can you just describe what the Institute for Advanced Studies is for listeners who may not know? Yes, it was a crazy idea that came out of the 1930s the depression so several people had the idea but it was really put together in its existing form by a man named abraham flexner who actually had been a high school teacher in louisville he had this dream of a paradise where people who really wanted to think about weird interesting things could just go do it and not have to deal with real problems how are you going to make that work financially, but he then got hooked into the Bamberger family, who were the Amazon at their time, had sort of pioneered the big department store in New Jersey that sold things cheap. And they had a public library for their workers, very good pension plans and so on. So they were loved by the community. And then when they had the sense to sell out to Macy's just before the crash, and then they put all that money to create this institute during the Depression. So they bought a farm. It had only changed hands once since William Penn, the Quaker, had owned it. And they set up Flexner's Dream, this series of buildings to where my father and mother met. They both were visitors there. And they had two classes. You either were invited for a year or you were invited for life. And so my mother and father were there as visitors. And then my father, after he did his great physics work, he got invited back for life and stayed there his whole life. So as a child, that's where we lived. They had broken up this farm and let faculty build houses on the back part of the land and 
the visitors struggle for places to live until Julian Bigelow, the guy who built the computer, he brought in a bunch of war surplus housing, set up a housing project. So the visitors live there. So it's this artificial paradise. But as a child, you can be a child growing up in a prisoner of war camp. That's normal. So for us kids who grew up there, that was normal. People's job was to think about whatever they felt like thinking about. And that's what they did. I got to go back because that's how Torrey's Cathedral happened because I got invited back for a year to dig out the story of the computer that suddenly had become fashionable. And I went back with my daughter. It was absolutely wonderful to go back and be there as a scholar. Originally, that anybody could go there to do anything. Now, of course, the dream was all the physicists would talk to the art historians and they would all live happily. And it's the opposite. It's like a high school where the string theorists sit at a separate table from the astrophysicists. But there's still some cross-pollinization, which is a great thing. Miracle is that it has survived. You know, most institutions like that have a very finite lifetime. All I've done is kind of recreate that world for myself, where basically I build kayaks and sell material and stuff, but I just work on whatever I feel like working on, because that's what I saw the people around me doing. And it's very productive. You know, Flexner wrote the piece in Harper's called The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. And the computer project, Turing's Cathedral, was the absolute proof of that, that they let these crazy mathematical logicians build a machine. They said, well, we thought we had a rule against building machines, but we don't. So, okay. So they started building it in the basement, and that was the digital revolution. Which one was it that they built there? The Maniac, the Mathematical Numerical Integrator and Computer. And the administrators didn't like the name Maniac. They tried to change that, but... It really is a treasure and now has been copied elsewhere. And it's quite the lifetime appointment, right? I mean, it's a professorship with a salary, but you don't have to teach. Right, which is also in some ways a fault. There are no students. So people like my father did really well because he was always going out and interacting with students elsewhere. But some people like Kurt Gödel or someone, you know, really became a little too isolated. But so as a child, it was like if your parents are teachers... We were there every year, but every year there was all these new group of kids because at that time there were like 20 or 25 permanent members and then 50 or 60 visiting members. And the visiting members tended to be young. So now we would call them postdocs, but very often young families with new children. So there were a lot of children coming through the place. It was great for kids. But then for us, we would stay every year. And then every year, there would be this new group of kids come through. Thank you, George Dyson, for joining us. Thank you for telling us about all this interesting stuff from Badarkas to the Institute of Advanced Studies. We look forward to future books, and hopefully we'll have you back one time and talk about a different book. Thank you. And I'm happy to see all those analog instruments on your wall. The Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, and edited by Santiago Ramones, produced by Lucas Cantor, but also kind of produced by Santiago Ramones. And Santiago Ramones has his own podcast, and it's called Bit Depth, and it's really cool. And you should listen to it. You can reach me through my website, lucascantormusic.com. You can send me an email. You can give me a call. New episodes every Friday. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. mathematical ideas being appropriated by popular culture. As a professional creative, musical terms are misappropriated by executives constantly. If that drove me insane, I would not be able to work in this field. So I feel like me and your mom might have gotten along on that. Yes. (laughs) 